0: Hello, and welcome to the new Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison, producer of The Bunker and Romaniacs. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please do subscribe for a new daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, plus the feature-length full show on a Wednesday. You'll need never listen to Thought for the Day again. On this podcast, the NHS is under the spotlight as never before in most of our lifetimes, as the coronavirus crisis shows us astonishing scenes of bravery and commitment from the staff, and also raises questions about the funding and organisation of the most prized institution in our society. Alongside the outpouring of applause and admiration for NHS staff, there is still widespread confusion. Many of us really don't understand how the NHS came to be organised the way it is in 2020, even if its structure and funding are fit for purpose during this enormous trial. We worry about privatisation and underfunding, but do we really know what we are worrying about? And if corona reminds the country just how valuable the NHS is, what does that mean for future changes and reforms to the service? To help us understand all this, I'm joined by health writer, commentator and NHS expert Roy Lilly. He's chaired health authorities and trusts. He's written for The Guardian and The Sunday Times. He runs the influential NHS managers network. And when I asked my mates who work in the health sector, who everybody in the NHS listened to, they said, Roy. So we got hold of him. Hello, Roy. Thanks for ta- taking the time to talk to us.
1: <laughs> There's no pressure there then. Okay, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, I'll, do, yeah. I'll take a stiff drink and do my best. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and is it fair to say that this we're witnessing the greatest trial the NHS has, has faced since its inception in terms of scale and cha- and, and and challenge?
1: Yes I mean uh, the NHS is often uh, busy you know we have what we call the winter crisis every year when we've had uh, floods of quite often elderly frail people coming in uh, to the to hospitals and to our services and we've had to look after them and then uh, on top of that of course we we seem to have had an all year round crisis in in recent times with as the population gets older and the Patients get frailer, Uh, but this is this is on a whole different scale. I mean, we're we're in different territory here. We've uh, we've cleared out a third of patients in hospital beds uh, and got them home. So we effectively we created three hundred, so thirty three thousand new beds. Uh, in in the NHS, ready for coronavirus patients. We built uh, a full-scale hospital in nine days in the Excel Centre in London, and there are others on stream now in Birmingham and Manchester and elsewhere. Uh, And and so, I mean, I think the, the NHS is holding its collective breath at the moment for what is to come. As we're recording the first patients have gone into the XL Hospital, the Nightingale Hospital in London, and so already some hospitals are overflowing, we, uh, and that's where the overflow patients will, will go to. So, yes, I mean, this is the, the biggest challenge, I think, since the 5th of July, 1948, when the NHS was born. This is its day and its hour.
0: Many of us are confused at how the NHS got to be, you know, got to its current configuration. I mean, the most, the most, most of us know is John Major and Tony Blair did PFI and then austerity happened. And then Boris Johnson was sort of trumpeting the biggest investment in the NHS in decades before Corona. All the time we hear cuts and stop privatization, but th- there's a, a great lack of understanding out in the world of exactly how we got here. Can you give us a, a kind of potted layman's version of why the configuration of the NHS was the way it was at the beginning of Corona?
1: yes i mean this this has been this has given a big disadvantage there there were two things that happened it was the, It was the unfortunate coincidence of the confluence of two things happening. The first was Andrew Landley, who was the former Secretary of State for health his reforms and his reform act came in uh, in two thousand and twelve the nhs the health and social care act two thousand and twelve. What that did was effectively try and break up the the NHS as this great leviathan juggernaut that it was, run by the Department of Health at the centre, subsets of regional health authorities, seven or eight of those across the country, then district health authorities, and then the providers, the hospitals and the GPs and so on. That was the sort of the the layer upon layer of how the NHS was working. (laughs) It was regarded as being cumbersome and bureaucratic. Mrs. Thatcher had a go at changing it uh, in 89 90 when she introduced NHS trusts. All hospitals became independent standalone trusts and they could make some of their own operational decisions. But Andrew Lansley's view was that it was still too much of a leviathan and too much of a juggernaut. So he broke it up. He split the Department of Health in two. One bit of it looked after primary care. Another bit looked after the hospital. He pulled out public health. Now, of course, you know, in the middle of the coronavirus, everybody knows what public health does. But he set up a standalone arm's length organization called Public Health England. In addition to that, he pulled out all of the IT capacity and pushed the IT into something called NHS Digital. And and pretty much every department that existed previously was, was put into an arm's length organisation and run independently. The idea, his idea was it will be a disaggregated management system where the tensions between the organisation would bring them together when they needed to be together and apart when they were apart, when they didn't need to be. It was a disaster. I mean, everybody who knew anything about management said to Lansley at the time, this is a disaster, don't do it, it won't work. Uh, and very nearly, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, at the time, he very nearly pulled the plug on it as well. He made a famous speech at, at one of our hospitals in Ealing, where he said that that he did understand that the, the proposed changes were controversial and, and very different. And so he proposed a pause uh, in the changes. The pause then... Uh, it had a sort of a, a small group of guys that came in and did a an inquiry into whether or not these reforms were going to work. It was a setup. I think most people would say, and we all knew what the answer was going to be. The answer was going to be, yes, we should do it. So we did it. Now, that was, I mean, if it wasn't bad enough that we got the whole of the sort of uh, administrative and management uh, structures smashed to smithereens and we're all figuring out how it's all going to work. On top of that, we had the world banking crisis in 2008. And there was huge pressure then on all, all the public sector because the government pretty much did a handbrake turn on all funding. Now, the NHS had been used to, since it was born on the 5th of July, 1948, up to about 2008, 2009. It had had an uplift of about 4% per annum per year. Some years more, some years left, but roughly 4%. And the NHS can kind of cope with a 4% uplift. Well, come the world banking crisis, handbrake turn, government stopped funding all public services. It cut... NHS funding to under one percent, and we've had pretty much flatline funding since 2010, right, th- right through to 2015. Then, in addition to that, the uh, the local authority funding was cut, and, and that was actually cut. It was cut by forty percent, four zero percent, and social care was just smashed to smithereens. So we had these these two things happen: uh, uh, a reorganisation, which was just an act of madness, really, and we've had um, the funding crisis. Um, which uh, we're still not really properly recovered from, although the the Prime Minister May's government did introduce some additional funding, and this government has proposed more funding. Uh, Boris Johnson's government has proposed more funding. So you've got the legacy of those two things, and then on top of that, we get hit with a pandemic, which we haven't seen in living memory.
0: What sort of state was the NHS in to face a pandemic? Although it is a once-in-a-century a event, was the NHS in any fit state to deal with it?
1: Well, it, the NHS does plan for all kinds of untoward events. And, I mean, we've seen how the NHS has responded to the terror attack. For example, the terror attacks in London and Manchester. I mean, it's they have a well-rehearsed format. They have Gold Command coming in. Everybody knows what they're doing. The police, the the military, uh, the uh, the NHS, the paramedics. Everybody knows what they're doing, and that's how it all works. and And uh, casualties get taken to various hospitals they're distributed around so one hospital doesn't get hit with too many patients so we know what we're doing with a pandemic of course um it it's it's mostly a paper exercise in rehearsing because we haven't had a pandemic for you know for for so long and with the terror attacks i mean as disastrous and and awful as they've been um We've, we've had some and then we've learned from terror attacks and built that into our new responses. So we've kind of learned as we've gone along. We start with a plan and then we've learned as we've gone along and our responses have got better to the terror attack. With With the pandemic, there are basic planning, and I, you know, when I was the chairman of a, a hospital trust, I went on a civil defence course, uh, as it was caused in, called in those days, they called it resilience these days, but I went on a course to plan for uh, civil emergencies, as they call it, and a pandemic was one of them. And yes, you do um, learn. Uh, uh, how to deal with with a vast number of patients and and a whole shed load of problems that come with it. And it compounds, it gets more and more difficult to deal with. But what we're dealing with here is something that I don't think ever was really envisaged. We're dealing with the pandemic of what they call a novel virus, Now, all the pandemic training that I did was around the idea of having a virus for which there would be some kind of antiviral response. We would have a vaccination or we'd know how to treat people or treating people would be relatively simple, albeit that they would come in huge numbers. What we've got here, why the coronavirus-19 is so novel is, first of all, it, it is brand new and novel and we don't really know how to deal with it. Secondly, it gives us the, the effect of the virus is to give us um, a pneumonia type response. Now the difficulty with a pneumonia type response, if you don't have an antiviral that you can give patients, if there is no treatment, all you can do in treating this kind of problem is to take people into hospital and give them oxygen. Because the reason for that is lung, people's lung function fails because of the, uh, the effect of the virus. When the lung function fails, you don't get the oxygen in the blood. When you don't get the oxygenated blood, you get major organ failure like renal failure or heart failure or liver or kidney failure. And so what you get is a whole load of really, really seriously ill people now we don't understand why some people can get a dose of the covid-19 and get over it and they're back to work or back you know back standing in their five or seven days but we as yet it may be something to do with viral load or or us as individuals we don't know yet but what we do know is that some people they they get a real bad dose of this and they have to go into hospital and they do need oxygen and 20% of them will need uh, it, what we call intubation, that means uh, a machine helping them to breathe. The machine is put down their throat and the air is forced into their lungs and does the work of the lungs for them. Now, th- there's two things about that. Firstly, in order to do that, you need a ventilator. And in order for the ventilators to work, you need skilled um, and nurses and doctors t- t- to make it happen because you can't just give every any, you know, anybody a, a tube and say shove it down your throat. It's a very complicated thing to do. You need additional skills for organ failure, and that means more kit. And the other thing you need is ventilators. And we had about four thousand ventilators in this country, and four thousand was enough. It's low by European standards, but you know it was okay. Um And we managed with four thousand suddenly, it looks like we're going to need twenty eight or thirty thousand so uh, and the and the further problem is it, a normal patient in inverted commas that needs help with ventilation needs help with ventilation between three and five days. The covid patients seem to need ventilation for between five to twelve days, so effectively you you elongate the use of the ventilator, you double the time it's in use with one patient, and that effectively halves the number of people that you can put on the ventilators, which is why there's been this big scramble and getting the Formula One companies and, and vacuum cleaner makers and all those of it to make us ventilators. So that's why it's a big problem, and that's why we're facing... Uh, the difficulties we're facing now.
0: So it's a uniquely difficult disease and a uniquely unpredictable one. This is a political conversation. And the question that people keep asking is, is the government doing the best it can possibly do under the circumstances, or is it falling down on the job? And I know that's kind of a banal reduction of a massively complicated question. But you know, will, will you humor me and tell me, you know, from your kind of objective point of view, are they doing the best job it, that they could do given circumstances that they and their political predecessors created?
1: Well... I mean, given the wreckage that, that Andrew Lansley gave us for the NHS, they Simon Stevens, the chief executive of the NHS, Sir Simon as he is now, he was trying to unpack all that, and I think he'd agreed with Boris Johnson. In fact, I know he'd agreed with Boris Johnson that they were going to change some of the legislation around the Lansley reforms to bring the NHS back. Uh, in pretty much the, the shape that it was previously so we've got a clear line of responsibility head office and a cascade of management so i think that was on its way because all that's been sideswiped now by what's happened subsequently now were the if, if we just park that because that's you know an unusual state of so circumstances in fact if Everything we're talking about is an unusual set of circumstances. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's like that's unusual set of circumstances. One, Unusual set of circumstances. Two, was it was the government ready? Well, there are, uh, uh, as I, we were discussing earlier, pandemic uh, training and preparedness and all that kind of stuff. And so they, I think they thought they had a, a, a plan. Um, my view is that they were slow to respond um i think we saw what was happening in china and we thought oh well that's happening in china uh that's a long way from here we'll be all right but because what we forget is that the the usually the the flu virus uh that we all seem to get or don't get each year always comes from china and it comes from um some of the ways in which they conduct their public health measures in China. Um, But we always get the flu and it always comes from China. It comes from Australia, China, Australasia, and then it comes around the world because the world is a much smaller place. We ship goods around the world and we ship ourselves around the world on airplanes. I mean, you know, in 17 hours, you can be pretty well anywhere on a plane. So we've we've got that propensity now for viruses and, that, and those sort of illnesses to just whiz themselves around the world. Now, I think we were slow to react. Um, but I think we thought it was going to be a virus like all the other viruses that we get each year. You know, somebody would come up with some kind of uh, flu jab type thing and we'd be okay. So I, I don't think they really kind of cottoned on to the – importance of this. When you think the first cases appeared in China before Christmas, November, December, then of course it coincided with the Lunar New Year. So we had a huge number of Chinese population traveling the world to be relatives for their new year and so on. and So there was uh, an opportunity to spread it then. And I think probably history will show that's how it all started. And it wasn't until um, January the 30th that the uh, NHS England Uh, declared a level four emergency uh, for the coronavirus once it had been identified. Now, we did that here. Simon Stevens did that uh, with the Agreement of Ministers. um, And I understand that was a bit of a tussle to get him to agree to it. But he did that before the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. So I think we kind of were slow out of the blocks I think we sort of thought it would be a flu pandemic like, you know, a, a flu thing like every other flu thing that we deal with. And I think they, they kind of woke up to the fact that it was going to be a lot bigger and, and realized, you know, once we, we declared a level four emergency, that they had to pull their finger out. Then, of course, what can government do? Well, government's only got two levers. One lever is marked bungs, and the other lever is marked beatings. Now, bungs and beatings, what do I mean by that? Well, beatings means law. They can pass laws or unpass laws or pass regulations or whatever. So that's the beatings bit of it. And the bungs is they can just throw money at the problem. So what have they done here? Well, we've had bungs and beatings in equal measure because we've had the Coronavirus Act 2020, which gives the – government huge power to be able to shut the schools and close the parks and stop us all from working and and for the old bill to give us a 60 pound fine if we're if we're caught having a picnic in the park so they've done the beatings bit as far as the bungs bit is concerned well i mean i i don't know where the money's come from but they've thrown I shed a load of money at this. The NHS has got all the money it needs. I mean, you can't build the XL Hospital, Nightingale Hospital, in nine days with two and fourpence. You know, this is like a hugely costly thing. Overtime rates for people working through the night, all the rest of it, huge costs involved. So, I don't know, where's the money come from? Well, there's a contingency reserve, uh, which I imagine is depleted now. Uh, The government can raise money by sovereign debt, that means bonds that they sell in the markets, 30, 40-year bonds with a rate of interest. But the trouble is every other country in the world is issuing sovereign bonds to try and finance its response to the COVID-19 epidemic. European Union are issuing uh, uh, bonds as well. Um, And then the other other thing you can do is to print money, which which they call uh, quantitative easing which is what they did in the world banking crisis. So, I mean, when we come out the other end of this, uh, we'll all be talking about what the hell we do with the economy because, I mean, I imagine there's going to be a global recession. We've got to find a way to get out of that. I know we're here to talk about the, the NHS, but you can't talk about the NHS without talking about money and you can't talk about money without knowing where it comes from. And I think we've probably got some bigger problems to come.
0: Has Corona changed the trajectory or the destiny of the NHS? Has it changed the way it's going to go? We, you know, we've had minister, ministers quoted off the record as saying it's now the Corona Health Service.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's a great question, you know. I mean, the NHS always has uh, a, a soft spot, doesn't it, in the uh, in the nation's heart. Uh, everybody criticises the NHS to say, oh, you can't get an appointment and the NHS is useless and blah, blah, blah. But they're usually the people who haven't used the NHS recently. If you talk to people who've used the NHS, most of them will say, "You know what? They're rushed off their feet, but they were so kind, and you know they, they sorted me out, and I'm so much better." And thank God we've got the NHS. And uh, and so we've always occupied a kind of special place in the nation's heart, that's for sure. But you know what? The first time, the first person on the Thursday evening at eight o'clock stepped out their front door and bang the saucepan lids together and clap for the NHS. It, there was a standing ovation for the NHS. It wasn't just applause. It was an ovation. At that moment, the NHS's status in this country has changed forever. It has changed forever. There is no, no politician now that is going to be able to change the NHS or Talk about socialised medicine or insurance systems or any of that, because look around the world, you've got the Italian system uh, in Lombardy, for example, terrific healthcare system in Italy, nine percent per annum, nine percent of their GDP they spend on it each year, and it's and it's a very high standard. But what's happened? It's a regional based system, and they haven't been able to work together as a nation. Look what's happened in America. You've got states. American states competing with other American states, competing with other insurance companies to buy protection equipment because it's a free market and the price of everything's gone up. And so if you come here, we've got socialized medicine. It's paid for by our taxes. We all put a few quid in the tin. At the beginning of the year, I hope we don't need to take any out. If we do, it's there. If we don't, we say good luck. I'm pleased that somebody has had a cure, had a fix, had an operation, had a transplant, had a blood transfusion, had a baby. And I've been able to lob in a few quid to help pay for it. Socialized medicine. So I, I, I do think. That I don't know. It was a woman I think that came up with the idea of I forget her name, but I saw an article about her in one of the papers, and, where she came up with the idea of the clapping for the NHS, applauding the NHS. I tell you what, it, that is a defining moment in the history of our country.
0: Yeah, I mean everybody's experienced it. You come out absolutely, you come back into your house absolutely choked yeah. and amazed that we have this thing. I tell you, well, i I've,
1: is- uh, I'm uh, staying in my uh, flat in London. While uh, this is on, because I uh, I live on my own and I'm nearer people here rather than being stuck in the country, so I just felt it was a safer place to be. And I came up and and stood on the balcony of the apartment block and right uh, by the river. And Extel actually is just across the road from me. Uh, and I I I tell you, you know, I've I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of things, but I wept that night. I had tears running down my cheeks, and I, you know, I'm kind of welling up now talking to you about.
0: You You're getting me going as well. well I'm afraid, right? I mean, we might we may need to take a moment. It was,
1: my, it was <laughs> just, it was just so moving, you know.
0: Yeah, so but I want I, I wanted to ask you though. Does the, I mean, is it possible that this massive outpouring of affection for the NHS and this kind of reaffirming of what it means could actually stall necessary reform when this is all over? That that, that that sort of reorganisation of the NHS that would be beneficial maybe kind of cast as you don't mess with our NHS. I mean,
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. I, I, actually, I think that it will be uh, a force for a great change. I mean, what have, coronavirus has destroyed families and and we've lost our loved ones and we've seen you know huge heroism from all sorts of people. Uh, but... I think we have to make this the fulcrum point for change. Uh, there's no question. I think that the the undoing of the Lansley reforms that Simon Stevens, the chief executive of the NHS, wants to do, I, that will go through. I have no doubt whatsoever that that will will it will get the, the nonsense of Lansley. We'll scrape Lansley off our boots finally. Um, and the other thing I think is that the, the NHS has been slow to take on uh, technologies and innovation Just n- not so much in the terms of treatments because you know the leading edge treatments that are saving lives in ITU now are you know the best you can get anywhere in the world. But it is has been slow to adopt computing. In fact, he's had several goes at computing and wasted a shed load of money and got it wrong. But it's you know things like I mean, I'll give you, for instance, for a long time now, I've been pushing with others to try and get GPs, uh, general practitioners, to talk to people, to see people, to give people consultations uh, over smartphones, you know, things like uh, FaceTime and Skype, that that kind of stuff. And uh, they've been really slow to respond to do that. They've kind of hung on to traditional ways of working. I think they've seen it as a a threat. And we've had companies like uh, Babylon, which is a third-party provider of consultations on smartphones, come in And they offered their service via the NHS. And I think within about three weeks, 70,000 people signed up for the service. And they nearly went broke trying to sort it out. And The the NHS England panicked. Um, They tried to slow the whole thing down. So you could see the public were up for that. Well, now, of course, what is happening? All the GP surgeries are shut because we can't spread the virus by getting out and about. So how do you talk to your doctor? Well, you do it on your smartphone. They're all doing it now. And of course, once you do that, the public are not going to want to go back. If you look at uh, outpatient appointments, uh, I was at a hospital before all this kicked off, up in Milton Keynes, fantastic hospital run by a guy called Joe Harrison, a very bright, um, young chief executive, really open-minded guy. Now, he discovered he was spending a million pounds a year on stamps, sending out appointments to outpatients a million pounds a year for on stamps, really? You know, so he thought, okay, let's fix this. Well, he fixed it. Firstly, he went over to email because most people have got an email address. Uh, And then he said to people, we could uh, could offer you an appointment quicker if you're prepared to do it online with the equivalent of a kind of FaceTime device. And 80% of the people that were asked said, yeah, we'd love to do that. And now, of course, everybody's doing it. And I know people will say, well, what about the people who can't do it and people who don't do the technology and all that? Well, l- listen, it gives us more time to look after people like that because we've got more headroom now to look after people who we've got to look after on a more personal basis. And, you know, not every consultation is suitable for it either. But what we are seeing now is is this technology that we've been trying to get into the NHS being used by uh, uh all of the trust i i there's an article in um, uh one of the um trade magazines uh, out, i think it's computer weekly i think and it's out this week then they're saying that the digital companies that are providing digital services are just i mean they're just going through the roof look at something as simple as zoom uh the software that people used to have uh you know they talk to their family or they use it for the uh, meetings and all the rest of it. Boards are now, trust boards are now doing Zoom meetings because they can't travel. People can't travel. Well, when this is all over, people are going to start saying, "Well, why can't we use Zoom? Why have I got to drive into you know and spend like, ten quid parking in the car park?" And then we're going to say, "Well, actually, does the NHS need all this administrative estate? Has he got too many offices?" How much of the? How many of these people can work from home? Because we've got huge numbers of NHS staff now who are working from home. And so I think we'll get to the point where a lot of people will say we don't want to go back to the bad old days.
0: Two things just before before we we finish up. You know, we're sort of often. We feel like we're kind of between two choices of a British style NHS, fully publicly funded, all the kind of threat of a US private insurance uh, system with massive bills and the horror stories you, you see coming up. But of course, as you've explained earlier, health provision is massively varied throughout the world. You know, what for you, it may well be the British one, I don't know, but what for you is the best system in the world? Well, you know, who is doing it best?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question because I've travelled the world really looking at healthcare systems and I've spoken at conferences around the world. I've spoken to people. The one thing that people always say to me is we wish we, we had your system, the NHS system. And the NHS system is the money to fund the NHS is tax funded. So we all, as I said earlier, put a few quid in the tin and it's there if we need it. The system people really do like and that's the envy of the world as far as the the other part of the question is concerned there is no best healthcare system there are some places that are good at some things and other places that are good at others i mean if you've got enough money and you've got cancer the place you want to be is in the united states because it's absolutely leading edge if you've got enough money and you're going to have a heart attack, well, you could do well, uh, you know, being in Singapore. If you're elderly and you want to be looked after, well, there's no doubt about it that Japan is the place to go to. And so you could kind of go around the world looking uh, at healthcare systems and picking out bits and say, you know, that's good and that's good and that's good. It isn't all good in one place. Uh, in the NHS, we are very good at some cancers, but not good at others. We're extremely good at recovery from heart attacks. We've got heart attacks off down to a fine art that I would think that's probably one of the best in the world for a public funded system. So that's that's sort of going very well. We're hopeless, in my view, at the care of the elderly. If you look at some of the care homes, the mess they get into, the fact there's no, they're not nurse led, there's no you know, medical involvement. Uh, so our care home system, I think, here is ru- is rubbish, really. Don't get old. Um, um, but, you know, pediatrics. you have a heart attack because we're good at that. Yeah, yeah, but you can have, any, have a heart attack. Um, pediatrics. Um, Uh, where's the best in the world in paediatrics? Well, I think Australia actually are very good at paediatrics and they're very good at emergency medicine as well. So, you know, I can go around the world and I can give you uh, a list of who is good at what component. As far as which is the best healthcare system in the world, well, you know, if you're going to get run over by a bus, you want to be in a country that doesn't look uh, for your credit card it just looks for what your needs are and we're living with that right here
0: right but this has been absolutely fascinating i mean just before you go i want to ask you one thing if you if you you could impart one important fact argument point of view about the nhs that that is broadly not understood and would help us all if it was what do people need to know about the nhs that perhaps they don't
1: i think they need to know uh, this is a slightly ethereal, spiritual answer, but but I think they need to know the, the power of vocation that we have in the service. People don't just come to work in the NHS. They come with a strong sense of vocation, and that runs right through the system. It, the porters, uh, the people working work in estates, the, the canteens, the catering, Everybody and, of course, you know all the clinical and medical staff. There is a strong belief, a sort of social solidarity, that runs a bit like a stripe in a toothpaste. You know, the the, the red stripe in, in the NHS is a blue stripe. You know, the blue stripe of vocation that runs through the NHS. I it's I, I've I've not seen anything like it anywhere else in the world. And we should cherish it and be very proud of it.
0: Roy, thank you so much for joining us on the bunker daily it's been it's been both informative and inspiring uh, this is going out on thursday morning so will you be out with your pots and pans
1: yes i will absolutely i'll be <laughs> out right. right i'll be out there with a tear in my eye clattering my pots and pans
0: yeah i, I think a lot of it, people will be uh, to everybody out there thank you for listening please do follow us on twitter at bunker underscore pod and let us know what you think of the podcast we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily Roy, thanks for joining us everybody else it's thursday get your pots and pans ready we'll see you out there thanks bye-bye The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Rees. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.